This episode is sponsored by Fire and Fuel Coaching, where I help you discover who you are and where you want to go, both on and off the job. For more information, please reach out to me at my Instagram handle at Jerry Fire and Fuel. Welcome to today's episode of Enduring the Badge Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Dean Lund. And if you haven't already done so, please take out your phone and hit that subscribe button. I don't want you to miss an upcoming episode. And hey, while your phone's out, please give us a rating and review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on, such as iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. It helps this podcast grow. And the reason why, when this gets positive ratings and reviews, those platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify show this to other people that never listened to this podcast before. And that allows our podcast to grow and make a more of an impact in other people's lives. So if you would do that, I would appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. My very special guest today is retired law enforcement officer of 30 years in Southern California. Gary Eddington has an incredible story about his career and what he did in it, but he also went through quite a bit of just traumatic incidents. Gary suffers from PTSD, and when you hear the story about how his dad was brutally murdered on duty when Gary was three weeks into the academy, You'll understand why, plus some other things that happened in Gary's career. Gary's also an author. He writes an incredible book called Outside the Wire and shares some of his other experiences in some other parts of his career that is very fascinating that he did with the U.S. government. Now let's jump right into this podcast with my very special guest. How are you doing, Gary? I am fantastic. It's great to talk to you. Great to meet you. Yeah, it is awesome to have you on. It's awesome. There's so many topics we could talk about. Um, hopefully, we'll cover the important ones that need okay. to be shared today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking Gary, forward to it. Yeah. Gary, t- tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm First off, I'm way older than I care to admit now. <laughs> and for years and years throughout my career in law enforcement, I was the baby-faced kid. And, and I was always the baby-faced kid. And even when I was in the detective bureau, my, my nickname was the lad because I was a kid and now not so much, but anyway, born and raised in Culver city, California. My dad was, uh, was, uh, in the coast guard and then got out in 64. He was a senior chief petty officer and went to work for the LA County Harbor patrol. I, I, uh, where I first got any glimpse into the world of law enforcement where I spent my career, um, I uh, went to public schools. My mom and my sister and everybody all had this idyllic, very idyllic home life. Um, I graduated, went to junior college, and I also um, uh, became a a police explorer with the Culver City Police Department and did that for several years and then got hired on as a cadet, which is, you know, a paid position, a non-sworn paid position and worked. Uh, in the identification bureau, going to crime scenes and stuff and taking photographs. Um, And then um, uh, did uh, operations dispatching and stuff like that and patrol and detectives, which is where I really sort of uh, was in the third week of the academy. And uh, my father, who was with LA County Harbor Patrol, as I mentioned, was attacked by a crazy guy armed with a buck knife and um my dad was able to get one shot into him but he didn't even really break stride the attack occurred at probably 10 feet or less and uh which is 
well within the lethal zone for a knife attack. Um, and uh, he, he cut the right, got my dad's right crotch, stabbed him in the chest, knocked him to the ground. My dad was not wearing a vest. Uh, as I said, he got one shot off into him and it hit him in the left hip and the round split into two uh, and one piece exited out his lower abdomen. But he was able to uh, uh, hit him in the chest with the knife and then uh, got him on his back and cut his right carotid artery. And as you know, um, that's it. And, yeah. uh, and then he picked up my dad's gun. And uh, he walked uh, through the, an area. I don't know if you're familiar with Moreno del Rey in Southern California, but uh, this occurred where the Cheesecake Factory is now. Back then, it was uh, Chuck's Steakhouse. And uh, he, there, it's right next to a kitty beach, uh, cabanas and small beach, waiting mm-hmm. beach kind of thing. And uh, it happened on uh, an idyllic Sunday afternoon actually right around noon 11:30 is actually when it happened uh, uh september 30th 1979 and I, I i was in the third week of the sheriff's academy and had actually had breakfast with him that morning i had come home from a, a ride along with my parent agency and dealt with some some you know froggy drunks and other stuff and we talked about that and we talked about a a case that was very, very much in the news back then in L.A. It was the Eula Love shooting, which involved a couple of LAPD officers who uh, were attacked by a woman armed with a knife. And they ended up having to shoot her as she threw the knife at them. And uh, it was a big mess and brouhaha. And, you know, the media actually, you know, mischaracterized what was going on. They were actually there investigating assault with a deadly weapon because she'd hit the gas company employee who was there to turn her gas off because she hadn't paid her bill, hit him in the head with a, a shovel. And so LAPD responded to an assault with a deadly weapon. They weren't there to collect the rent, collect the, the bill. But that's, of course, what the L.A. Times reported, which is. How do they get away with this crap? You know, I I mean, it's really, it's I don't know. Disgusting. It's, and, yeah. uh, and so anyway, so uh, fast forward, uh, the guy, the, the suspect, his name was Stuart Schwebel, um, was uh, encountered by two deputies that were responding to an officer down call. Uh, a couple witnesses, a nurse and some other people picked up the radio on my dad's bike and put in officer needs help officer down and they responded and countered the guy um, you know on the other side of the beach there and he slashed at him with a knife and he had my dad's gun in his waistband and so they knew that this is the, the suspect he was covered in blood and everything else so they fired around a couple rounds at him and missed him and then they chased him across the street engaged him again and dropped him and he expired at the scene there which is a good thing for me because i'm not sure it was hard enough to deal with, as you can only imagine, but yeah. having to deal with the nonsense of a trial in Los Angeles County, uh, you know, is would have been probably too much for me. This individual had already been arrested and uh, for about 18 months before for assault with a deadly weapon and attempted murder uh, on a police officer. He was armed with a rifle. He had a, have a lover's quarrel um, with his roommate. 
picked up the rifle in Marina del Rey and started blazing. And my dad responded, a bunch of other people responded, took him into custody. The court found him uh, criminally insane and sent him off to a Tuscadero State Mental Hospital where he spent 18 months. And then they kicked his butt out the door with a handful of Thorazine and told him to sin no more. And of course, being a lunatic, he stopped taking his meds and lost his mind. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a failure on many, many fronts, uh, failure of training from a law enforcement standpoint, uh, criminal justice system failed. And, um, you know, we were robbed of our father, my, you know, he would have, he never, never, never saw my, my children and, you know, all of that, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a tragedy. It's, it's unfortunately though, it's not isolated. Right. I've known many police officers who have been killed by individuals who were supposed to be in jail, but were not because the criminal justice system in Southern California failed. So this is not the first time, unfortunately, and probably not the last. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, Gary, I mean, like, I, I have to ask, like, why did you continue? <laughs> like, you've right. been asked this a lot. Why I, did and, you continue? You know what? The thought never occurred to me to stop i you know i had known officers who had been shot uh, uh gravely injured actually uh one particular officer at culver city um so i was aware of the dangers um and but um the thought of of not not finishing uh, just never occurred to me. I had worked so hard to get to that point in time. Law enforcement jobs were hard to get, uh, especially if you didn't have prior military, because all these guys were coming back from Vietnam. And this was 1979. And they were applying for jobs and they had a leg up on pretty much anybody unless you had, you know, an inski, you know, like a cadet and an explorer and all that stuff. It was hard, you know, and um, it just never occurred to me. I'll never forget the day of the funeral. One of the guys came up to me. In fact, in fact, in my book, um, my agent at the time had said, you know, add a, give, a, give the protagonist, Rick, a little bit more of a backstory. Tell us a little bit more about his background. So I actually fictionalized the, an account of what happened. Uh, my character, Rick, is, uh, is a retired LAPD lieutenant, but at the time, he was with his training officer in, this, in the story I tell. And one thing that happened, I'll never forget this as long as I live, I was standing out on the lawn in front of my, our house, and of course, there was reception at the house after the funeral, and one of the guys came up to me, um, uh, Tom, Tom Dibiak, uh, and said, Gary, now it's up to you. You got to get these people off the street. And I carried that with me my entire career. I've never forgotten that. I'm I'm sure I've kind of paraphrased what he said, but he yeah. basically said the baton is passed to me to get these people off the street to protect the public. And that's what I did. So did, there you did go. that make you feel like you had a more of a burden though? Uh no, um, not at the time then. Uh, I was like, I, I mean, to be very, very honest, when I look back <clears throat> upon it now, I received no counseling. I received no, you know, no nothing. 
Yeah. I was off of the academy for a week. I didn't even cry until funerals on a Friday. My my fiance and I I knew I needed to do something because I had all this inside of me. So um, I we went to a movie together, which affects me to this day, called The Onion Field. And it's a crazy movie to go to after having just endured something like this. But I knew I needed something from a cathartic standpoint to kind of open the floodgates, so to speak. And it yeah. did. It did that. And it still does to this day. Um, but um, I think I was so numb that the thought of of having that burden never really occurred to me. It was now a question of I'm in the third week of the academy. I have – 16 more weeks to get through. Um, and that was where my, my, my concentration was, was to get through that Academy, that next 16 weeks of, of fun and games, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, one of the things that happened to me on the, my first day back to the Academy was um, we were in the middle of a vehicle code uh, lecture. And it was one of these typically mundane vehicle code lectures and vehicle code in California is like three or four inches thick. And basically if it, the, the rule of thumb they used to say is if it looks wrong, it probably is. <laughs> so, so it's pretty boring. And so all of a sudden in the middle of this vehicle code lecture, they stop and they get the film projector out and they show the sheriff's department's reenactment of the CHP Newhall shooting where four CHP officers lost their lives to two dirt bags. And it was just, and the, the, the sheriff's back then um, did a pretty damn graphic uh, reenactment. I mean, with chicken guts and squibs and blood bags and everything. I mean, it was like, and they used to show that video to the new guys to scare them you know, to get them to quit. Right. And they've showed it a couple of times during the first week or two. And then all of a sudden they showed it at that moment on my first day back. And there is no doubt in my mind that it was specifically to see if I could, if I could hack it. And, um, you know, uh, obviously I did, you know, I mean, people sitting behind, I'll never forget this one guy sitting behind me he was a retired uh, Marine and he's like, it's okay, Gary. And he's like rubbing my shoulder and, you know, and it's like, you know, hang in there, buddy, hang in there, buddy. You know? And, uh, but it was, uh, yeah. And then at the end of the Academy, I'll never forget this. As long as I live, my DI, who was, a, he was, he was a good guy. He used to tease me all the time because my, my skin was so, so pale and i'm working in manhattan beach and he was a boater so he's like you know you need a suntan you need to get out there and anything so at the end of the academy and he used to he used to you know he used to kind of screw with me a little bit every once in a while and um he said to me gary he said when i when you were when you got here i wasn't sure what to quite you know whether you belonged here or not but he said if anybody deserves to graduate you do and i've never forgotten that as long as i live you know that was a moment that was like so elevating and you know because this was this was the ramrod he was the authority figure for our class he barked and people jumped believe me but when he said that to me that was a really big deal a really big deal it's a very that whole it, that whole thing was such an such a formative and important you know impact on it had such an impact on my life and my career my career choices um that 
you know, it was, you know, it, 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 it's amazing to me, though, looking back on it now that nobody said, hey, you know, we should probably send him to a shrink and see how he's doing. I mean, that's crazy. You know, when you stop and think about it now, it's crazy. And when and I'll tell you something interesting, you you'll find fascinating. Uh, when I was at, uh, training uh, in training at, at Manhattan Beach, I, we did 90 days of training, three months. I had two incidents in Manhattan Beach, which is a tiny little beach town involving crazy guys armed with knives, which I never saw another one after that. It was like somebody upstairs was testing me to see if I could, if I would, I make it. And in the last one, it was really close. It was a, a, a kid who completely lost his mind and was standing on the, on the terrorizing his family with a big old butcher knife. And he's stark naked standing on the, on the, um, at the stairwell of the house. And me and my FTR are crouched behind a, uh, a, um, a hedge. And he looks at me and all we had back then, we had our guns, we had batons, we had flashlights, we didn't have pepper spray, we didn't have tasers, you know, basically that was it, you know. And uh, he looked at me, he said, Gary, if he comes around that hedge, and he's only like 20 feet away, he says, "Um, I got my streamlight, I'm going to throw the streamlight at him. And if that doesn't stop him, it's up to you. And I'm sitting there with my 45 in my hand and I'm going. Oh crap! This really got very real, really yeah. fast, you know. And uh, but fortunately, it worked out. We talked him down. Nobody got hurt. It was good. It was all good. But that was that was a moment I will never ever forget. I'll tell you that. I can still see that see that hedge and see the kid in my mind's eye and my gun in my hand and thinking, "Oh my god!" You know, this is this has just gotten really serious. This is not a game. Yeah. So, so Gary, I want to go back to something you were talking mm-hmm. about, like in the Academy. And then you were sure. talking about the feeling like very numb. Yes. You know, did that just numbness continue? I mean, past your Academy and then past those two other incidents, did you just continue to be become numb or like, what were you feeling? Like, I, I, were we just shoving everything down? Exactly. I was shoving everything mm-hmm. down. It was always like right here, you know, I mean, it was just mm-hmm. ready to pop. And, um, and I mean, there were moments when I had to step away because something triggered that emotion and I just got emotional mm-hmm. and, uh, because of the grief and never really feeling like I really, really dealt with it, you know, and, um, and it manifested itself in other ways too. Um, I think I became more suspicious and more defensive uh, because of it. Uh, I mean, I certainly and and you know, on a positive side, it taught me that I can't take anything for granted. I have to be careful all the time, you know, and be aware and ready for anything at any moment. And and as throughout my career. The incidents, uh, shootings occurred or incident, violent incidents occurred frequently when you absolutely least expect them, when they are completely routine things that are happening. And all of a sudden, everything goes to hell in a, in a blink of an eye. And you're like, and when it's all over, it's like, what the hell just happened? How did, where did that come from? You know, it's never, I've, uh, you know, the, the times that, that, I have been 
close, never, never fired a shot in anger at all. Thank mm-hmm. God, you know, yeah. but the times I have come very close, <laughs> most of them were completely unexpected, absolutely routine, you know, and all of a sudden something changes and you are now like, you know, in total, you know, fight zone, you know, in, 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 you know, prepared to do what it takes. And um, I think it made me more aware. It made me take, you know, survival trainings more seriously. I always wore my vest. Always, always, always. I never, I always wore my vest when I work, when I work patrol. And uh, um, because of what happened to my father, I was never casual about that at all. I always, you know, I've always had uh, a, a real respect and uh, for for edge weapons, for knives, I carry one every day. But I mean, yeah. with, like my dad said, son, you got to carry a pocket knife. But but I know what they can do, you know, and they're and anybody who says uh, I don't understand why they use deadly force against somebody who was coming at him with a knife doesn't understand or know what the reality is. And uh, which is unfortunate because you see that all the time. Why did they shoot him? Well, they, you know, because they, people who ask that question have no understanding of how lethal a knife can be. You know, we used to do training and uh, I was on the range staff and, and uh, the, the, the tactics staff, and we would do training where we would have an assailant armed with a rubber knife, a blue knife, and you'd have the officer standing there 20 feet away, 25 feet away with a you know a blue handled gun in their hand with a training gun and the mission was to get a shot off before the guy's on you and nobody could do it yeah the guy was always on you and if you got a shot off it was at the very very last millisecond and chances are it's not going to be a shot that's going to drop them because we're talking about a small area here where you can actually instantaneously drop somebody and that is that is that divine hand of God, if, if that if you make that shot in that circumstance, it's just blind luck, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I knives scare the hell out of me. They really yeah. do. But I you mean, know? all for perfect, perfectly good good reasons. You know, yeah. The, so did the did the numbness like ever wear off, or did it just keep? Like that probably had to manifest itself in other ways, like you're in home life too, as well. Yes, it did in ways I was unaware of. Um, It's only been in the last year or so that I actually really started working on this and uh, got professional help um, to help me cope with it because I was talking about it a lot. And I realized that Um, there's a lot inside of me now, 40 years later, um, that, uh, I need to address and I needed to deal with, and I did get some help with it. And I think it's made me better. It's, it's, it's one of the, it's never going to go away. These things never do. There's always going to be, and I'm always going to be, you know, I'm always going to have the traits that most, most people that, you know, we're in my profession have, you know, looking head on the swivel, you know, back to the wall, yeah. all that stuff, back to the wall when you sit in a restaurant, all that crazy stuff that we do as cops. It's stupid, but we do it. Um, but, um, you know, it is still, you know, it's, 
it's something that will, will never leave me and I will probably have, you know, uh, I'm better now than I was. Let me just say yeah, that yeah. I'm better now than I was. And I, and I know that it did manifest itself in my home life with my wife and kids and things like that. Uh, but I think now I'm a better person, a much better, calmer, calmer person, you know, than I was. Yeah, I, I think. Of course, if you ask my wife, she'll say I'm <laughs> still nuts. But what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, she's probably right. <laughs> well, there's just some things that you can you can get help with, you know. Um, but there's also just some habits and traits that are are going to stick with you a lot longer. I mean, right. The trauma work from therapy is is great and it helps the things, but you've learned over that long career that you had all these other things. So you have to, you know, try to figure out how to unwind those things. That's, that's right. work on your own, you know, not necessarily yes. something that a, a trauma therapist or someone can do for you. Exactly. No, that's very true. That's very, very true. Uh, you know, I, I try to say, you know, I, I, I stay active and, uh, I do CrossFit. Not if you look, if you, you know, if you met me, you'd go, oh, this guy doesn't do CrossFit, but I've been doing it for a long time and I'm not very good at it, but I do get my butt kicked all the time. I went this morning and got my butt kicked. I try to stay healthy, you know, and I'm not one of those guys that's sedentary. And because I know that that helps me psychologically, mm -hmm. it helps me, uh, you know, after a tough workout, I feel more relaxed. I feel like a lot of stress has gone and, uh, you know, I feel much better. And I, I, I firmly believe that, that, uh, exercise, any kind of exercise, even if it's just going for a walk is really, really good for clearing the head, clearing the mind and, and bringing people and things back into, or giving you a better perspective mm -hmm. on things, you know, yeah. uh, we're, we're so inundated with, everything all the time, the media, the phones, the email, the all of it, that you need a break and you need to, you know, sweat and, and get away from all that stuff. So I try to do that. And um, I'll tell you something else too, that's really yeah. been wonderful, has been that little guy that I was telling you about before we came on, that little, that little dude, my, my, my best buddy there, Declan, that guy, I mean, no matter how crappy the day has been, and until I retired, I was having some crappy days there for a while. But when I look at that little guy, it's like, man, he just puts a smile on my face. No matter what he's doing, he just puts a <laughs> smile on my face, you know? And uh, and so I think, you know, I think that's cathartic, you know, and helpful too, you know, because I, and I also think it kind of gives you a little more perspective on the important things in life, you yeah. know? You know, we get so caught up in our careers and everything else. And for me, you know, I just retired, you know, from my my final re double dipping, you know, <laughs> retirement gig after 10 and a half years of chasing bad guys for this company as a corporate security investigator. And I got really caught into it. You know, I'm, you know, I was chasing bad guys and running all over the place and everything. And so um, having him around really taught me to slow down a little bit. And, you know, this stupid retirement gig is not the priority. The priority is that little guy, you know, that's, yeah. that's the thing that it really taught me. And um, because, 
you know, he's what matters. You know, our families are what matters in the final analysis. Uh, nobody's going to say, yeah, that guy, Gary, he was a great agent or he was a great detective or he caught a lot of bad guys. They're going to say, yeah, you know, your family's going to say, yeah, he was a great dad. He was a great father, you know, grandfather, whatever. Those are things that are important and they make the, and they make the most difference. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot to unpack there because I feel, um, you know, we, we don't look at that part of our lives probably as much as we should, yes. you know, it's, it's a lot of it's taken for granted. Um, exactly. And I don't say that meaning that by any means am I, am I, am I perfect? I, I'm still learning and learning these things and trying to adjust and change exactly. things about myself to help with that. But that, like you say, we're so involved with work that we, basically can't unwind ourselves to right. be somebody different at home. Like very few of us could do that. Well, you know, we're both, I mean, it, it, in your career and in my career, we're used to dealing with more so with you than me. Um, because I always used to say, roll the paramedics. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is you're dealing with life and death situations all the time at critical incidents all the time. And, and the, it, and that has to weigh, take a tremendous toll because, you know, it is it is a uh, a mission that is so critical and so important. And the consequence of error is so grave mm -hmm. that that's a heavy, heavy burden. That's a really heavy burden. You know, when that's that's why I love I love the, the name of your of your show, Enduring the Badge, because that's really true. You know, anybody right. puts a badge on, you know, they're picking up a lot of uh, of responsibility and, um, you know, the public looks to them for help at their worst moments. Right. And when you fail, it has consequences that last forever, you know, and so you can't fail that, you know, it's a, you know, it's a zero it's a zero mistake world that you live in. And uh, and that's a lot. People don't understand that. Yeah. You know, people in the media, uh, you know, politicians, you know, people who've never walked in those shoes do not understand how serious the world is that we occupy, you know, and what we or what I occupied and what you occupy. I mean, um, that's a very, very heavy burden. Very right. heavy burden. You right. know, you know, that was. So, I try to put into perspective in some ways that, you know, to be a amazing baseball, you know, they're batting, you know, if they're right. four out of 10, they are amazing. They're elite. They're yes. the best. There's no way we could survive in this career with being the four out no. of 10. Couldn't do it. I, and, you know, I mean, it, when I worked counterterrorism, when I was the, the task force commander in LA for California department of justice, um, you know, uh, if we failed, if we missed something, something bad could happen. So the consequence of error is pretty high. Right. So, you know, that was, that was a burden that I carried. It was, you know, are we, am I making the right calls? Are we following the right person? Is this, is this a case we should put time on or should we move on to this other one? Because we have finite resources and we're trying to, our mission is to protect 
California and protect Southern California, protect the United States. And we're dealing with people who are relentless and we have to be right every time. They only have to get right once. Yeah. And that's and that's the the grim reality of counterterrorism. Your adversary only has to be lucky once. You have to be lucky every time. Yeah, that would be so, a tremendous you know, pressure, right? Because the magnitude of it is of missing it something is. is it is. is. And I didn't realize how much pressure I was under until until it was over. And then I was like, wow, boy, that was really a lot, you know. And and you know, I wasn't running, you know, I wasn't seeing the kinds of things somebody at the national level would be seeing on a daily basis from throughout the country and the world. I was dealing with a small part of that, a tiny part of that, and it was still stressful. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. What, I mean, you've done a lot of different things. I mean, you wrote uh, the book Outside the Wire. Like, what, Gary, what was your, what was your favorite um, thing about your career? You've done a lot of different things. Like, what was the favorite thing or position, post, whatever? I would have to say that um, the high point of my career as, as a sworn peace officer was commanding the um, the task force in Los Angeles uh, and being, yeah, it was stressful, but it was and challenging. But I also worked with the best of the best. And, um, and I worked with, I got to see and do a lot of really interesting and cool things. I worked with some great people on the Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI and other agencies who are dedicated to, you know, to keeping America safe. And, uh, you know, we're true believers in the, the mission and the goal. And um, that was a great, great, great experience. I was I worked on the task force from 1999 to 2008 when I retired and I stood up the task force for the California Department of Justice in late September of 2001, post 9-11 and, um, you know, recruiting the people and training them and, uh, you know, getting them embedded in, in different task forces like the Joint Terrorism Task Force and other things. Um, it was, it was challenging, but it was extremely rewarding and very exciting too, you know? Yeah. I bet, I bet very challenging, especially during those times. I can't, can't yeah. even imagine the, the challenges that you would face because of something being completely so new really, right. to Americans. It is. And, you know, um, we would get back then, uh, because nine 11 was fresh, we would get reporting all the time from local law enforcement and from the public. And uh, we'd have to vet those reports and make sure that, you know, and evaluate them and look at the ones that seemed credible and the ones that weren't credible. And sometimes the ones that don't seem credible actually were credible. And the ones that you think are coming from an impeccable source were actually garbage and white noise. And there's so much white noise that it gets in the way of what's important and what's real. You know, yeah. because of the volume uh, of, of reporting coming in, you know, as you can only imagine. I mean, everybody was seeing a terrorist on every corner. And, of course, that wasn't the case at all, not even close. Right. Um, but there were a lot of people out there. They weren't necessarily terrorists, but they were they were functioning in a support role, uh, either funding or assisting in other ways, assisting with with uh, immigration documents and fake marriages and, you know, all kinds of other scams and things and uh, or conducting reconnaissance 
our, uh, you know, uh, of, of vital, you know, critical node infrastructure nodes and things like that. Uh, we, we got that stuff all the time and some of it was absolutely real. It was the real deal and some of it was not. And it was up to us to, to separate the wheat from the chaff. It wasn't yeah. always easy. No, uh, I, it was interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. And I, once again, can't even really imagine trying to sort through that much information. What possessed you to, to write the book? <laughs> That's a good question. I ask myself that pretty much a dozen times a day. Why did I do this? Um, because it is it is the, probably one of the most challenging and difficult things I've ever done, but also probably one of the most rewarding things too. Um, because I, as I said to you earlier, I get to meet guys like you, people who are from all walks of life. And uh, it's been really fun in that regard. But I, when I was over there, um, I had, I had done some writing in the past, a little bit of writing. I sold a couple of magazine articles. I had a script option 25 years ago, a murder mystery, and it wasn't produced or anything. But so I've done a tiny bit of writing. Um, but I had, I, I, while I was over there, there were a lot of, unfortunately, and this is once again goes back to the stresses of the job and not being able to cope with them. There were several suicides at Camp Victory while I was there. In, in in Baghdad, and uh, and then there was an attempted murder um, at another forward operating base that was in my kind of area of responsibility. So I was aware of these things, and and then one day I was walking back from the chow hall, and literally, and thinking, and I had just heard a story about another suicide, and I started thinking, wow, you know what? Maybe there's a story here someplace. Maybe like a murder mystery, like a like a Agatha Christie, 10 Little Indians kind of story where a detective, a retired detective working embedded, you know, with the army kind of finds himself involved in helping out on a murder case, a multi-victim murder case. But that kind of morphed into uh, a terrorism, international terrorism story because terrorism was kind of my thing. That's sort of what I've been interested in since the 80s. And uh, so it was kind of a natural progression to move this from a murder mystery, although there are two murders in the book. In the beginning of the book, it begins with two homicides, uh, but um, it morphs into a race against the clock thriller, uh, uh, you know, international terrorism uh, uh, story. And um, and so that's that's and, and the thing that that I think makes this book unique is that there's a million books about war. There's a million books about the global war on terrorism. And most of them are written by military people. This is one that takes a look at that world from a standpoint of a civilian who was never in the military and you know, half the time didn't understand what the hell they were saying because they were speaking in acronyms and was not and it's a different world, a different way of looking at things. And so it's sort of a it was kind of a duck out of water kind of story in a way, because in that and I wrote the book in first person and frequently Rick, the protagonist in the book, will kind of look at the reader and go, I have no idea what the hell they're talking about or what they just said. There are moments like that. And um, I think that's what makes the story different is because it's told from a standpoint of it's a war story told from somebody who's who is not a soldier or a military person who is a civilian cop 
and he's looking at things as a detective, how, you know, uh, would would look at things, not as a as a because the, the military has a different way of operating. They don't really operate like detectives and civilian law enforcement, you know. Uh, and so there's a there's a cross uh, a, a conflict of cultures. It's probably the best way to say it. A conflict of cultures. It's like, okay. you know, why are you guys doing it this way? Why don't we just go <laughs> talk to them? You know, you know, as opposed to, you know, some of the things I saw the army do and the military do, you know, it's like, wait a minute, why don't we just go talk to them and see what's going on? You know, this yeah. is an investigation, treat it like an investigation, you know, and um, which is why I was brought, why we had people like me over there was to kind of help the military, specifically the army um, um, conduct investigations because the war had morphed at that point in time into a counterinsurgency thing. And the, and the military was, was bound to use the Iraqi criminal justice system, such as it is, uh, in in the uh, furtherance of keeping the peace, and so here we have soldiers, you know, from uh, you know all sorts of different units, now are collecting evidence and processing crime scenes like a detective would would do, or like a crime scene investigator would do, which is completely out of their, you know. They had to they had to learn how to do all of this stuff. One of the things that I did was come up with a a plan to in order in order to break up um, IED emplacement cells. Um, just like any criminal enterprise, there's money involved. There's people actually making a profit from that. The bomb maker is probably the most highly paid of all of them, and there's a financier. So if you take their money away from them. Then they can't play games. They can't do their nasty stuff. So that was one of the things that we did was the army, the guys would go in and they kick doors in and they they find piles of money and go, well, this is nothing. It's not bombs. It's not bullets. It's not explosives. Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit, right? Well, in actual fact, it's really important. So we came up with a plan to seize that money uh, and uh, take it away from the bad guys utilizing the Iraqi criminal justice system. And uh, I'm sure it was effective. I mean, it would have to be, you know, because money is is the root is is at the heart of politics and crime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, and there probably isn't a lot of difference between politics and crime either. But that's probably a whole not. other story. But the fact of the matter is you take their money away, then they can't buy their toys and build their toys and hire their people to to plant the bombs and build the bombs and do all the other stuff that they do. The whole chain. There's a whole chain in 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 planting bombs, and um, and that would disrupt that. So that was one of the things. And the other thing was um, was developing procedures to process uh, shooting scenes, sniper shooting scenes, because there's a lot of evidence that can be collected. And we had highly sophisticated, very very capable crime labs over there at Camp Victory. They were capable of doing everything from DNA to uh, you know. Um, Forensic analysis of spent shells and bullets and all kinds of stuff, fiber analysis, everything. And then what we didn't have there, we had back in the States, explosive analysis and things like that. And um, so it was really important to collect evidence properly, not just throw it in a duffel bag, but actually collect it and mark where it was found and take pictures and photo, just like we would do you know, at a, at a regular crime scene stateside, they had to start learning how to do. So that was another thing that, uh, you know, I came up with because these guys sitting in hides waiting for the good guys to come along, take shots at them. 
they're they're drinking you know sodas and water and eating crap and leaving DNA evidence all over the place. And um, it's important. It's not trash. It's actually evidence. And that's what we had to do is encourage the soldiers, um, the war fighters to actually collect evidence so we could identify these bad guys and take them out. So, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of fascinating because I, you know, I hadn't really thought of it, you know, from that perspective yeah. before. Like, I would just assume that they had these processes and everything already in place, but I could see how they, they probably wouldn't because this is something new. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the army is really good at breaking things and blowing stuff up and, and killing bad guys. But when it comes to collecting evidence, your average Joe, you know, is not going to necessarily be that, that hip to it. Now, maybe they are training them now to do that, but I would think that, Probably not, uh, because this was an this was now in a counterinsurgency war as opposed to you know a set piece uh, conflict you know with with armies and tanks and planes and all that stuff. This was more of a you know a, a ugly counterinsurgency you know up close and personal kind of struggle. Yeah, and so yeah, so and and they had to they had to collect evidence to to present to the Iraqi criminal justice system, which I, was fascinating. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine how the, uh, that would actually play out. Um, probably yeah. <laughs> extremely yeah. difficult. Gary, I can't what, imagine. Go ahead. Oh, what, what do you want the reader to get from reading your book? Well, uh, one of the things that I hope that besides being entertained, because I'm very, very proud of 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 the the accolades the book has received on and uh, I've got I'm up to like over well over 50 reviews uh, between Goodreads, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And um, but one of the things I want people to come away with from this book is a newfound respect for our our men and women in uniform uh, and the, the sacrifices and the miserable conditions that they endure um, for the, to, to serve this country and keep us safe and protect, uh, protect us. Uh, you know, uh, it's, I was lucky. I was kind of, you know, I, the fun times I had was when I got to leave Camp Victory and actually go in the field and, and be with the soldiers in the field. Uh, and Camp Victory is 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 uh, by by army standards is fairly plush, but it's still not that pleasant. It's not like going <laughs> to the Ritz Carlton. Trust me, it's really not. And Iraq is not a garden spot that I would recommend on any level. Uh, the dust, the smells, the heat is just unbelievable, unbelievable. But they endure it, and they are they. I'll never forget one time going on a dismounted patrol with a bunch of soldiers into a town that was full of bad guys and marveling at them because they're carrying all this crap. They don't, I mean, yeah. they carry a lot of stuff, you know, plus their body armor. And I'm care. I'm wearing the body armor and it's freaking like 30 pounds is what it weighs when you got the plates in and all of that stuff and the helmet and everything. And I'm sweating, you know, and it's hotter than the blazes and it's like midnight and it's still hotter than the blazes. And, 
and you know the bad guys are there because you're hearing the sounds of like the call to prayer, which is like a signal that they they will broadcast a call to prayer, which is being broadcast at the wrong time so that people know that, you know, Popo is in town, mm-hmm. you know, the bad, the good guys are here. So we better. And, um, and they're just like, they're just going along, you know, and, you know, laughing, not laughing while they're doing this, but I mean, they're just, they're so stoic and so fit and, um, and so professional. They know everybody knows their job, knows what to do and does it. And in the harshest sort of circumstances, you know, and uh, that's what I want people to see and and recognize in the book um, that it is, uh, you know, that it is uh, kind of showcasing how wonderful our service people are, our men and women in uniform are. They really are. And uh, I came away so impressed. Uh, you know, I was I was predisposed to, to because I kind of grew up in, around the military yeah. to a degree. But when I got over there, I was like blown away by by how impressive these young people were, how impressive. So many of them were doing these long, difficult jobs and then doing online college classes so they could get their degrees. And many of them were in the military specifically to get their degrees, to get a bachelor's degree, to help, you know, Uncle Sam help you pay or pay for your bachelor's degree. That's why they enlisted. And I think that's so impressive. You know, it yeah. speaks volumes about them and their character and their drive. So anyway, yeah. that's why. That's what I hope. Well, it sounds like you achieved that. I'm sh- I hope you so. Know. <laughs> I sure do. I tried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and I know people like 50 reviews, like it's really hard to get reviews. It is so hard. It's, it's a hard. struggle. It's a struggle to get reviews. So 50 for you listeners that may, you may not think that's a lot, but 50 reviews is a lot because people don't take time to do it. No, they even don't know when they love it and they tell you're going to do it. They don't do it. <laughs> I know. I know. And it's like, and you know, the thing has been so amazing to me, people that I went to high school with that I haven't seen since 1975, send me messages saying, hi, I read your book. It was amazing. I loved your book. And it's like, I'm telling you when that happens or my doctor, I'll never forget when I'm at my dermatologist, you know, of course I'm, I, you know, English Irish. So I'm like a skin cancer waiting to happen. And he comes in, he's going to do the whole check and everything. Hey, I read your book. It was fantastic. And then he tells his PA, Hey, you got to read his book. It's really, really good. And I'm like going, Holy shit. Pinch me. Is this really happening? You know? Uh, But it's a struggle too. You know, it's a struggle because there's so many books out there and it's, you know, it's a fight every day, you know? And, but, but, you know, getting to be on shows like yours and talk about it and is, is what makes it worthwhile. And I really so appreciate that. So appreciate. Yeah. Thank you, Gary. I think it's just fun. It's fun for me because I get to share, you know, things about the author, author and then the things about the book. Right. You know, and I think that's what makes it a good blend for, for right. listeners just having no, you know, Gary a little bit more now and now yeah. you, that makes the book even better. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the book, um, the book was inspired by my experiences in law enforcement in the United States. And of course, you know, uh, my experience in Iraq, many of the things did happen to me. A lot of them did not happen to me, fortunately, (laughs) 
<laughs> I always tell people, read the book and then then reach out to me and ask me which ones were the real ones and which ones weren't. <laughs> there you go. But, yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for being on. Hey, thank today, you. Gary. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, real pleasure to talk about it and, and meet you and everything. And uh, so, no, thank yeah. you very, very much. Yeah. Thank you, Gary.